This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books and Biography, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Krisa Pugh, and I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the New School in New York City. Today, my guest is Dr. Craig Seymour, who's a music critic and academic and author of Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross, which we'll discuss today. Dr. Seymour was born in Washington, D.C., and has written for the Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, Vibe, and Spend, among other publications, and has served as pop music critic for the Buffalo News and the Atlantic Journal-Constitution. He holds a PhD in American Studies from the University of Maryland, College Park. Dr. Seymour has interviewed and profiled some of the biggest names in music, including Janet Jackson, Mariah Carey, and Luther Vandross, who granted him numerous interviews. Dr. Seymour has also been a music analyst for CNN's Headline News. Today, we'll be discussing Dr. Seymour's book, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross, which was published in 2005 by Harper Paperbacks. The biography chronicles the life of the famed singer and producer, including his lifelong love of music and his infatuations with girl groups, particularly Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells and Dionne Warwick. In the book, Seymour includes many profiles of many musicians who helped Vandross along his way. Dr. Seymour, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And please just call me Craig. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Will do. Will do. Um, so could we begin just um, by you telling us a little bit about yourself and um, what brought you to this project? Like what was the inspiration behind the book and writing about Luther's life? Well, I was born in 1968. So I have experienced Luther's entire recording career. So I remember growing up and hearing his voice on commercials. I remember the impact when Never Too Much came out and when um, A House Is Not a Home just transformed the Quiet Storm radio and everything. So I grew up with Luther. The first Luther album I bought myself was um, Busybody. And I was like maybe 13 or 14. Um, and that album just spoke to me so deeply, I think, because of the longing in it. And I was probably somewhat aware of my um, of being gay, but not quite understanding it. And it's just one of those experiences that I think many of us have where you're listening to somebody and it feels like somebody's expressing your in- deepest thoughts or somebody. I just had such a connection with that album. So um and then I was I was lucky enough to be able to see Luther live back in the day where it was an entire, it was so different from any concert I'd been to because he put on such a uh, theatrical performance. He had a dancer come out and do like Alvin Elias, Elias dance moves to Superstar. And it, it, it just really blew my mind aesthetically. So he's just, it was a huge part of my um just development as a person, as a person who loved music, um, everything. So cut to, I guess, um, when I became a music critic and um, 
Luther hadn't really, so I really started in the music game kind of in the late 90s. And that was during a period of almost kind of a hiatus for Luther. Um, so then when his big, when he was making his big comeback in um, 2001, with the um, album, the self-titled album, but it has, a lot of people remember it, it has Take You Out on it. Um I just had to be the person that was going to write about that for Vibe. Like there was just no way because um, I was I was I was writing a lot of things for a lot of cover stories and everything, and that was just one of those things that like, no, you, I will be the one doing this assignment. So and also, I mean, they everybody thought that I would be perfect for it. So I had the opportunity to fly to Jamaica with him and spend all this time with him as he was preparing for a Mother's Day concert, and it was just really one of those. Um, remarkable moments looking back because I've had a lot of opportunities to visit with celebrities and see them in intimate settings and everything like that. But just knowing that that really was going to be one of his last moments and his last big profile, a a person who's all, who had always been underreported in the music press anyway, and there hadn't been a lot of big profiles of him. I just, I, I just treasure that experience. So then what happened, I, I've always wanted to write a book. So I was at this point, I was working a lot in journalism and just having this desire to write a book um, had been like a lot of people have been turned down many times on many different agents, many different ideas. <laughs> but um, and we can talk about this a little bit more because I think it's very telling into how black stories are told. But when Luther had his stroke, I was in conversation with an agent and we were talking about a lot of different ideas and I just kind of threw out, Oh, you know, I could do a Luther Vandross biography, not in order to capitalize on his ailment at the time, but more as just a realization that nobody had done that. And so I pitched it to her and she liked the idea. And then she, um, it, it sold very quickly. In retrospect, I realized that uh, I sort of look back at that with a lot of ambivalence because I really, in trying to pitch books on other artists since then, I really realized that the publishing industry was only interested in this man because he had suffered of the stroke. And that just, I just have a little, so many mixed emotions about that. Um, now but at the time it didn't really feel like that it felt much more like because i guess just in terms of my intentions it felt much more like just an opportunity to celebrate him but just seeing how the publishing industry works in terms of whether or not they are they um support biographies of black artists it just seems like the support really isn't there and i just feel like this book just got written really by chance, um, which is just so tragic in terms of us thinking about how Black stories are told and the importance of Black stories being told. I didn't mean to make that be such a downer, but that's just, yeah, I know. I just to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I know, of course. I mean, and that's that's where the book starts. You know, you start with his stroke. and I And, I, and that was one of the questions that I had for you was, you know, in terms of kind of, you know, the editorial process, you know, you could have started anywhere, like, you you know, you could have started, um, you know, from when he was born, you know, but you, you know, you kind of decided to start the book um, with the stroke. And I was wondering about that, like, I was wondering, you know, kind of what series of decisions, and I think you kind of answered this, and feel free to elaborate, but, you know, it seems like, you know, that was, it was so central to the story that you were telling. And then, of course, you know, he dies, if, I'm not mistaken, in the same year that the book is published, like not too long after the year after the stroke. Is that correct? Yeah, the book was actually published when he was still alive. Okay. In in hardback. Uh Uh-huh. The paperback came out within days of when he passed. Mm -hmm. And I just, I I know exactly the moment when I found out that he had passed. Um, I was... For some reason, I was driving back from I was driving from New York to um, DC, and 
I was listening to Wendy Williams, like a lot of people did back <laughs> in those days. And I literally found out that he had passed on the Wendy Williams show. And I had to pull off on one of those um, rest areas that they have on the New Jersey Turnpike. And just, I think I might've sat there for half hour, an hour, but, and I didn't even, I wasn't crying. I didn't even, but it was just such a, just bizarre feeling about to launch the paperback of this book. Like I had been, I had been having all of these conversations, all these emails about the book tour and who I was going to interview, who I was going to do interviews with and all of this stuff. So I was very much in kind of promotion mode and everything. And at least for me, just always hoping that, always retaining the hope that Luther was going to be able to, I didn't really care if Luther was going to be able to like perform again or do concerts. I mean, who cares, but just to be able to live and have some sort of life after that. I mean, I was, I had really been holding on to that hope and believing in it because he had made an appearance on Oprah Winfrey, not that long before that, where he was singing and just joking with his friends and everything. So I just was in that frame of mind of this man is going to recover and he's going to go on and everything like that. And of course my intention was always to celebrate his work and to just make his work part of a historical record so that people could have a source to go back to. And then just finding out that he passed like in the midst of being in that particular headspace was just, um, I still don't really have any words for it, but it was a very, um, it it was just a bizarre circumstance. It was yeah. it was just very um, strange. Yeah, but I can now in 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 kind of in the retrospect though, I'm very very glad that I was able. I, I believe in purpose and believe in things are meant to be and everything like that. And I just think that it was so great that I was able to talk about him so much because I had done, done this book on him at the time when he had passed. And a lot of people were interested in talking about him because he had passed. So I felt like, you know, they say, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. It's like, <laughs> I was ready. And I think I was able to really communicate the importance of his artistry to people at that pivotal time. So it, I look at it as, as a good thing now, but it was very strange and disorienting in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can imagine that being very, very unsettling and very jarring to be kind of in that headspace when you learn. And also just on an emotional level. I mean, like you said, you know, and in, in your introductory remarks that, you know, he's someone that you've been kind of you've grown up with and you, you know, had this connection to him and, you know, through identity and, you know, through the music, you know, he's been a very influential person in your life. And so just even on that level, um, I can imagine that just being really hard. So, um, yeah, yeah the, the, timing, one- the, the timing is really incredible though, to think about. It's really, I mean, I was trying to track that and, you know, it's, and because I think you open with this, you know, narrative about the stroke, it's like, there is, even in the moments, you know, of the book that are, you know, lighthearted and, you know, you know, his, his sense of humor comes out throughout the entire book. And yet at the same time, it's because you know that, you know, he had suffered this incredible illness, like he'd suffered the stroke, you know, people, you know, it wasn't clear if he was going to make it out, you know, and then he passed away, you know, not long thereafter. It's like, there is still this kind of, yeah, this heaviness that sits with the book, even while you're reading through these really kind of, you know, beautiful moments and joyful moments and, you know, funny moments, it's still, you know, it's still there. And so I think I have really appreciated the fact that you led with that, especially given the timing that, you know, it was published and all of this was going on. And then I think I imagine, you know, for people who were reading it in 2005, as it came out, you know, right after he passed, I imagine that that was a, like a deeply cathartic, you know, emotional experience for everyone who was reading. So in a way, I, I agree. It almost like, yeah, you you know, obviously don't want to be exploitative, but you know, it, it just seemed like it was, it was really like a kind of necessary timing for people who were grieving. So I, yeah, it's just, but I understand now the ambivalence that you're, that you're and, referring and you know, to. Yeah. And I think part of it, and maybe this comes through in the book, but I mean, after meeting him and having a conversation with him, I was just really rooting for him to be able to find the sort of specific happiness 
that yeah. he wanted because he was very specific about the things that he thought would bring him happiness. Now, who knows? I mean, a lot of us are specific about the things that we want and then we turn out to be wrong and they don't give us, but I think you should at least have the opportunity to go for that and learn yourself. And I mean, he really wanted love mm-hmm. and he really wanted a number one pop mm-hmm. single mm-hmm. and to the best of my knowledge, he was not able to get either one of those. And right. that is heartbreaking to me. You yeah. Know? Um, but the important part about it, and I think I sort of try to emphasize this when I write up, write the book. And as we were speaking earlier, knowing Luther's humble beginnings from the projects to no people telling him that he would never be able to be a performer to becoming one of the most renowned and celebrated R&B artists of all time, that's a journey that you just can't discount. And that's more than most people ever have or could ever even hope for. So the journey is wondrous. It's just that there were, in addition to that, there were also some very specific things that he wanted as a human being that he wasn't able, able to Get. So there's that sort of, and that, you know, hence the book, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. I think the life was so amazing. <laughs> you know, he's one of his songs, but the longing was still always there. And right. maybe it's always there with all of us. I don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'd love to go back to that that moment when you had this conversation with him. So you mentioned, you know, you're taking this trip to Jamaica and, you know, it was, it, it's... <laughs> You paint such just, it is a fantastic portrait. I mean, that is one of my favorite parts of the book. I mean, you talk about this really heartwarming moment when he's performing and his mother, you know, kind of walks up and and, and she grabs you and, and thanks you for writing about her son, which is just so, so touching. And then you start, you know, talking about the fact that you went to the step class with him. <laughs> it's just like hilarious imagining you in this like step class with Luther and all of his backup dancers and singers. I did not take part in this. I was an observer. I was wondering. I want to make that very clear. (laughs) I was an observer, but yeah, it was a very humorous, um, because they, I don't even know if this is, I don't even remember specifically if this is in a book, but you know, he, they were playing, I talk a lot in the book about how his musical grounding is really in a lot of old fashioned soul and stuff like that. So they were playing records from that era. So like they were playing I'm a soul man and Luther was stuck. I'm a soul man. And he was saying the word along. So it really was quite a um, distinctive picture of somebody that you're used to seeing in such a refined, controlled manner. And it was just a, a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's such a wonderful part of the book. And, but you know, what really sticks out about that, that encounter that you had with him was the the interview that you had and where you specifically, I mean, you're very direct and you ask him, you know, um, you know, you're asking him about his love life. You're asking him um, why it is that he hasn't, you know, found love. If, you know, you're asking him about, um, you know, the extent to which, you know, the sacrifices that he's made for his career, um, you know, that, you know, that yielded this kind of like uh, desire for love that had so far been unfulfilled. You were asking if it was worth, like you were asking these really penetrating questions. Um, how did how did that feel to be in that conversation with him? Like, how do you, like, how did he respond to those kinds of questions? Yeah, like what was that experience like for you having such an intimate conversation with him about something that was both on one hand so public in a way like so many people were, you know, speculating and talking about his love life and yet he was so private about it? I would have to say, you know, um, I always, I don't want to say over-prepare, but I extensively prepare for every single interview. So I'm always able to sort of reference something somebody said in the past or something like that. So it's like I'm building upon things that they said as opposed to just coming right out and asking something out of nowhere. So I think a a lot of what I did was kind of like say, oh, you said that you were like, you know, so a lot of my questions were based upon things that he had already said things that he had said in his songs. So I think that was more um, 
that helped contextualize it. It really, and I think also just um, we had a rapport from the very beginning. It was a very kind of like sparring type of rapport, but it was a rapport nonetheless where I could say something and he would tell me, well, no, you can't do this or whatever. But then, but there was a genuine, I think he could tell that I had a genuine empathy for him. I was not just trying to get him to make some headlining statement or something like that. I was really, I mean, as a fan, as a human being, I was really interested in his happiness and his search for love so that's where all the questions came from from my perspective and I think he took it as such at the same time he said whenever I got close to asking if there's anything queer you know you are riding around the airport you ain't never gonna land (laughs) like he was never gonna answer that question but he acknowledged that I was hovering around an airport so the airport must exist you know what I mean and um and it was just so funny because whenever somebody, we were having this conversation outside, some some of it, and whenever somebody would come back, he was like, oh yeah, I'm just talking to this guy from Vibe. He wants to get me all in my business and that he ain't gonna get. But, you know, yeah, we're just talking. I'll, I'll get with you in a minute. Yeah, we're just, you know, it was, it was very, um, it was very com- a comfortable conversation. And in a lot of, I would say in all of the aspects where we were talking about his love life, I think I was talking to somebody who really wanted to get some things off their chest. That the things that he told me about his search for love and not being able to find love and where he was at that point in his life of evaluating whether or not the way that he had talked about his love life was going to work for him moving forward I think those were things that he really, really did want to talk about with the right, with a sympathetic, with a person that wasn't just trying to be all in his business, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he could, he could tell that you cared. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's very evident. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you have the, there's so much intimacy in the book. Like you really bring us into, you know, his homes, um, the relationships that he has with various, you know, individuals in the industry, um, you know, his own family members. Um, how did you, you know, how did you gather all of this? And inf- I mean, this must have been a Herculean effort. It's like, so you had this, you know, you had, you know, some interviews with Luther, but, you know, you have all these quotes from, you know, Mary Ida, his mother. Um, you have quotes from all these other folks that, you know, in the industry, you have folks from other family members, you know, confidants, friends, like, how did you build, how did you build the book? Like, what was the process of, you, you know, you really kind of getting into the interior lives of not just Luther, but a lot of the, the, the cast of characters who surrounded him, um, you know, for his 50 plus years on, on earth. Like, how did you, um, how did you construct that? Well, A, I just have to say, I love that you said the thing about interior lives. Cause, um, one of my dear, dear friends of decades is, um, was Valerie Boyd who wrote, um, the Zora Neale Hurston biography. And we both were working at the Atlanta Journal Constitution at the time. You know, I was with her through the final part of her writing the um, Hurston bio and getting it together for publication and stuff like that. And she was the person that introduced me to the agent that sold the Luther book. So we would have a lot of biographer conversations um, and the entire, her entire um, sort of thing about what you have to do in a biography and what makes a good biography is that you have to capture the interior life. So that was something that I was going into it with. And um, other than that, it really was just a matter of old-fashioned reporting. I mean, I did not interview a lot of people for the book. Most of the stuff comes from other sources and other interviews. But in order to capture that interior life, it did mean doing things like, as I mentioned to you before, going to the place where he grew up, just walking around there, trying to get a feel of it, and just kind of researching with the aim to capture things that felt as if they reflected an interior emotional life instead of, 
oh, he went to this studio on this day, he went to that studio on that day. But just that was always my um, sort of guiding light of trying to capture that. So I think that that's where all the reporting and stuff um, comes from. The, the, the strange part of this book, and this is one of those things, you know, for anybody that's younger out there, you know, use your youth wisely. Because that book was written in from start to finish in it was supposed to be six months but it actually ended up being nine months because i needed an extension because i had a death in the family um i actually really don't know (laughs) how i did it because i could never do that now i think um a lot of times and one, this is one thing I like about myself, but I always get myself kind of in trouble for that. They wanted the book right away because they wanted it to be out for Mother's Day of the following year. I think I got the deal in 2003, so it came out in 2000. I think they wanted it out in Mother's Day of 2004 or something. They, they really just wanted to crash this book. So the short time I had to write it was contingent upon the deal. Like I didn't have the negotiation space to say, oh, no, this is going to take me three years because I need a year to research and a year to no they were like okay you can get this deal you can get it at this and I knew I had to immediately take a book leave from my job and just do everything like that and just focus on that a hundred percent and um it really was just I don't I cannot explain to you how I did it toward the end it was to a point where I was writing an entire chapter in a day and the other, and here's the weird thing too. I don't type very well. So I write everything longhand and then have to like pray or beg or something, a friend or my mom or somebody like that too. Uh-huh. Um, so my deadlines always, I have to build in that extra time of having somebody type it and then having to read back what they typed and make sure that it's correct. So it was crazy. I mean, my dad talks about it a lot with me that, because one thing I would do is I, at one point I just, like hold for part of the book was written in Toronto. Then um, I had a death in the family. My stepfather died and I went to help my mom and my little brother just dealing with all of that. And then at one point I just like locked myself in um, like a hotel in express. <laughs> I was just, and you know, put the do not disturb sign on the door. They didn't clean it for a week. And I just literally stayed in there all day, but my best friend was typing it for me and he was working at Yale at the time. And so I had to FedEx. This was before scanning was easy. So I had to FedEx my handwritten copies to him so he could have it the next day so he could turn it over. So I would call my dad and there was this FedEx deadline and I wouldn't, it wouldn't be the normal FedEx deadline. I would drive all the way out to the airport to that FedEx, which the deadline was like 730 or something like that. So I would always call my dad on the ride from when I stopped writing to when I went and sent the handwritten pages off to FedEx. So yes, it was entirely crazy. I don't know how I did it and I don't recommend it. And I know I could never do it again. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. I mean, it is amazing to think back on. Yeah, it's funny that you, you know, kind of open this by saying use your youth wisely because it's like, it really does feel like another person kind of did this. It's like, how could you possibly, I mean, now, I mean, we have like technology and, you know, ways that probably would have been more helpful then, but that's incredible to think about. I mean, and that just makes the story even richer in a way to know that that is how you were generating. Because it's really, I mean, if you had told me that you'd written it over six years, I would have believed you. It's so beautifully written and it's so evocative. And I just, Thank the prose are incredible. So, I mean, it's shocking. To, I mean, it's like inspirational, but it's shocking to hear that you wrote it in, in you know, six to nine months. It's incredible. Yeah, I have no idea. It's to, to the point where like it was even... Um... I had no perspective on it for like the first couple of years because I had written it so fast and I just almost didn't even know like what I, I didn't know if I had accomplished my goal. I didn't know if people were going to read it and think, oh, this is just something he threw out and, you know, why did he even waste his time? You know, I, I really didn't know because I was just, I just did the best that I could do in the time that I had to do it. And I really had no perspective on what it would mean. I just, you know, the only thing that I can say as far as, um, because I I guess a lot of writers listen to this, you know, a lot of people that want to write biographies and stuff like that. The only thing I can say is like, 
I think the most important thing in this, maybe you could just say in life in general, but just having an intention is just so important because I knew what my intention was. I knew that, um, you know, I wanted this to be a book that really explained how this man emerged out of a community and out of a Black cultural context to really reframe R&B music. And I knew that I wanted it to be, um, to be, to touch the heart, you know, so I had, and I still do this now, you know, I, and I don't even remember what the the, the specific intention was, but I know I had an intention. Once I locked into the fact of him having this internal longing, I knew that that was sort of a guiding light. And then the other thing I do um, is sort of put up just emotions that I know that I want to evoke. So I knew I wanted it to be funny because I thought Luther was very funny. And I knew I wanted it to be very heartfelt because Luther's music touches people so deeply in their heart. So um, I... So I can only hope and imagine that just having those things in my mind, then that became the filter through which I did all the research and that became the filter and that became the guiding light as I was putting down these words in the most hurried fashion that I've ever done in my career. But just if you have that intention and you know what you're trying to do, I guess you end up kind of coming close to that and doing it. That's my only, because it certainly wasn't a mat. It was not at the point that I was relying on craft or relying on kind of manipulating the individual words. It really was about having sort of a holistic vision and then just trusting that that was going to come out on the page. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did that, I mean, I, I, yeah, I want to follow up on that a little bit because you had mentioned that, you know, when you, you know, you were kind of in this, you know, production mode, you know, thinking about the book tour when you learned of his passing, you know, were you, were you able to, you know, kind of get the book out there in the way that you'd wanted to? I mean, like, I'm, yeah, I'm curious, how was it ultimately when you sent it off and when it was published, how was it received? Um, well, that my editor wanted it to be more salacious. So she was, um, I guess, upset that there wasn't more like scandal, and there. And I think she also wanted it to be a sort of um, meaner portrait of him in a way, um, in that he had a reputation for, I guess, being difficult or whatever. Um, which I think is all in the book, but I contextualize it as to why he would be feeling this way in any given moment. So I think that, um, and I had another person that knew him say to me, um, that I made him too nice. And I was just like, well, I mean, I just didn't know what to do with that. Cause I, I think I just tried to do a balanced portrait. And I think that you understand what, where he came from and what he was going through at any given time. So maybe you are more sympathetic to how he might've reacted in a pro, pro or harshly in a particular moment. But I don't think my job as a biographer is to make somebody come off as me or any particular one way. I think I'm just trying to provide uh, the context of somebody's life and just then present the facts as they are. And you can, take them however you want it. I mean, I think a good example is like the In Vogue or the the feud with In Vogue or like the Anita Baker situation. Um, I just tried to present those facts as they were and both sides of the, both perspectives, but I don't think I lean toward ever saying like Luther was right or justified in doing any particular thing. I just sort of presented as it is. And you can think what you um, want to think of it. So that was one thing. So she was, the the editor was not a hundred percent thrilled with it um, to be perfectly honest, but she had no comments. The only editorial comment she had was um, one in one part of the book, which I didn't even remember when she was bringing this up to me on the phone. Because uh, this was back when you had, it wasn't like Google Docs, like the editors just like called you. So <laughs> at one random point in the book, I think I mentioned something about Diana Ross going to a concert and that she took a helicopter to 
the venue. And literally the editor said, and I just didn't understand this part because I didn't know what heliport she landed in because I'm familiar with all the heliports in upper Manhattan and it either had to be this one or that one. And I'm just thinking, okay. And that was literally the only comment that the main editor had on. Of course, you go through things with the copy editor, but that sure. was the, that was the only editorial comment. It wasn't anything wow. about the content or anything. I'm just like thinking, wow, you are really fishing. If you have to, yeah, yeah, <laughs> if you're worried about like Diana Ross's health, I mean, it, it wasn't even central to the story. So right. it, it was very weird. So then, okay, so let's cut to the um, sort of reviews and stuff like that. And the first. This is another example. I, I hate to be like, a, you know, teaching spiritual lessons through writing or anything like that, but I do think that there are just some interesting things because in the writing, one of my biggest concerns, and, you know, there's this thing like what you focus on expands, you know, and not kind of like staying in that place of fears. But one of my biggest fears was that somebody was going to call the book superficial that somebody was going to think the book was superficial. And do you know that the only advanced review of the book was in Publishers Weekly and the one and they specifically said they thought the book was superficial. So it was like oh no. What? And so it was heartbreaking until I got the perspective of thinking, you know, a I don't focus on bad. Th- I don't try to not to focus on what the bad reaction to something is going to be anymore because I do think that, that that puts you in trouble. But then in a way it was freeing because I was like, oh, well, you know, th- this one reviewer said the worst thing that you thought somebody could say about the book. So, so it's already been said. So in many ways, it was also freeing because I was just like, OK, well, they are somebody already. What my worst fear was has now been achieved before the book has even been out <laughs> so basically anything after that is sort of like well, not, you know okay you know if that's what you think that's what you think mm-hmm. this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, yeah. this conversation has gotten really, emo- we were so lighthearted when we were talking. <laughs> I'm like, this conversation has gotten so emotional, but that's great. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, it's all instructive though. It's all good. I mean, I was kind of going back to your point about someone saying that you were a little bit, uh, you know, too nice to Luther in a way. I think that, you know, even, I mean, you did, I think that those, um, the moments where you do talk about, you know, the kind of difficulty of working with him and, and those examples of, you know, and Bogan and Anita Baker, it's like, even those money, I mean, those moments that you describe, even those are like quite funny, you know, like in a way it's like that, the, um, one of my favorite parts when, yeah, you're talking about kind of in the midst of the En Vogue feud and he, you know, he kind of has this like curtain constructed so that he doesn't have to see them backstage. <laughs> and then one of the members <laughs> of En Vogue, you know, kind of whatever accidentally or maybe intentionally is like on the wrong side on Luther's side of the curtain and he calls the cops on her. <laughs> it's just like, even Luther in his like meanest moments is still just hilarious. Like it's hilarious to think about. I mean, it's, it's just a shade, right? <laughs> yeah. Like the absurdity and just like, I mean, he's just such a diva and like, so many of these moments. And it's like, even if there was like a kind of mean spiritedness to it, it's, it's also, there was just, you know, even that was just, I mean, I, it just, it, there was so much humor in the book, even in kind of like the, you know, even though there were such dark moments, but I, you know, I just really appreciated that you were able to balance like, you know, this, like, you know, this idea of like a very kind of public feud and then, you know, they go, you know, they end up going public with it and, you know, coining him Lucifer and all, you know, it's really kind of damaging. And yet, you know, it's still just this kind of like, you know, all these funny anecdotes come out of it. So, um, I mean, along those lines though, are there, um, were there any stories, you know, that kind of you discovered, you know, through the process? I know it's, you know, been a while, obviously since you've written the book, but, um, 
do you have any favorite stories of Luther that either, you know, were, were in the book or, you know, are not in the book, but that you discovered in this process or that you even, I mean, the step class in Jamaica is just incredible, <laughs> but, you know, any stories, you know, that you and yourself uh, experienced or, or ones that you heard of in the process of, uh, of writing this book about Luther? Well, one of my favorite parts is, um, I mean, even to somebody that knew his career so much, I still didn't have a sort of sense of all the time that passed that he was just in the background. Like from when he did the David Bowie tour and Bowie was like, oh, you're going to be a superstar like next year. And it was like over a decade later and just all the many tries that he had that didn't work out. And yet he persevered. So what some of my, um, so some of my favorite stories come from that. Like just thinking about just the idea of this like sheltered guy with this church going mother and all this kind of stuff and just kind of, you know, living in anybody that knows New York knows that like at one point it's kind of like, or at least back then and stuff, it's sort of like the center of the media world and sort of the center, but it's also completely its own place. And so when you go outside of that, it can be kind of jarring. So just the idea of this person that grew up in such a sheltered environment, like instantly going on, almost immediately going on tour with David Boy in this wild thing. And then David even asked him to open the shows. So just the funny things, I think David Sanborn may have told me this, but, um, just the things about everybody doing drugs and he didn't do drugs or didn't even really know what they were doing and didn't know, you know, and they would be saying things like, oh, we have a cold and (laughs) he would take it at face value and it turned out they were up all night doing drugs or whatever. (laughs) That's just kind of hilarious to me because I just can visualize it. I just see this um, kid trying to make, young Luther trying to make sense of this just great, I mean, Things that would have been that are even looking back sort of wild, just even by rock and roll standards, you know. And then I think um, I talked to Christine Wiltshire, who was a member of his group, Luther, that a lot of people don't even know about, that he actually had a whole group called Luther. And just she was just cracking up about just talking about and I don't know how much that even this even comes through on the book because a lot of it's just in our conversation. But just the way she was laughing at how her hair looked and how their hair looked and him all in the tight three-piece suit and on the album cover and just all of that kind of stuff. That was just so funny because it just made me realize that it's so easy to think, to look um, retrospectively back on somebody's career and think that there was some kind of master plan and it was sort of like they were on this journey that was inevitable, that would inevitably lead them to stardom. But when you really go back and research somebody's life and talk to the people that were around, you realize that people are just figuring out as they go along, like everybody else and faking it till you make it and all of that. And so anytime I had a story like that, it was just kind of funny to me. Totally. Yeah. It just, it is, it's amazing. And it, it was, it really was, and it was just, it was so cyclical. Like it was almost to the point where like these, you know, these cycles that, you know, Luther was going through, it almost became kind of predictable in a way. It's like, okay, he like has this like, you know, kind of near stardom and then, you know, you know, he almost gets to like, you know, the top of the charts, like so many times that he has like, you know, platinum after platinum after platinum album, but never gets that like number one hit on Billboard Pop. And then like, he gets so close a couple of times he gets to number three and then he doesn't get it. And then he like, you know, gets depressed and then, you know, he starts eating again. And then, you know, he, you know reconfigures and gets, you know, a new group and relaunches his career and, and then someone dies and then he starts eating again. And it's, and so it's just, it's like this cycle that is, it's so tragic. Um, but I think, you know, and it comes out so beautifully in the book, I think this kind of, um, yeah, just this, like the way that kind of like you, you progress through his life in a way that's informed by, you know, these friends of his, I mean, that is, I mean, that's a, that is a, that's a great story that, um, yeah, about Luther the band. I mean, I mean, that was a moment when I was just like, I, you know, there's so many parts of his story that I didn't know. Um, and then to hear that he had this band and, and to see, yeah, to see that photo of the back of the album and, you know, this like, yeah, it's just, I mean, it is, it's, it's both like entertaining and heartbreaking. I mean, it's just, it is all of, 
it's all of that. So I just, yeah, I mean, I'm, I I love just, I mean, every, I mean, I just kind of like went through the book highlighting all of these stories that were, and the Bowie story is incredible. I mean, I knew that he, you know, I, 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 I had seen the video, um, you know, where he was singing backup vocals for young Americans, but I, you know, and so I knew that, you know, he had this Bowie connection, but I had no idea how pivotal Bowie was to launching his career. I had no idea that he was that influential and kind of, you know, quote unquote, discovered him or is one of the people that kind of discovered him. So, and I think that's one of the beautiful parts about the book is that you really do this great job of, you know, kind of writing all the almost kind of like microbiographies within this larger biography of all of these different characters. So, you know, and talking about all of these obsessions that Luther had with all of these girl groups and, you know, these women, you know, soul singers. So yeah, who would you say, I mean, were some of his biggest influences and, who in turn would you say he also influenced who's still making music today? Oh, that's a really wonderful question. Um, I would say probably one of the singular most important influences in his entire life would be Sissy Houston, Whitney Houston's mother, because he was, um, and for people that don't know, they sang, they had, they were their own group, but they also sang background on, um, a lot of Luther's, I mean, a lot of Aretha Franklin's signature hits, like that's Sissy Houston doing that high note on Ain't No Way, um, which it's hard to imagine Ain't No Way without that high note. And so he was he was obsessed with them as background vocals. He always loved background vocals. He loved them as a group. And then it was just a relationship that they always maintained because then they would be working together as background singers together. You know, he'd be side by side with this woman that he grew up revering. So they sang background on um, Shaka Khan's Naughty album. And that was one of Whitney's first um, credits. You know, so they were all together. And then when he became in his in his recording career, he would always hire her to sing backgrounds on his album. So I just think that's such a sustain. And I was able to talk to her, which was um, just such an honor. And I just think that's such a that's such a sustained relationship that really was not about being in the spotlight or not about um, wanting thing from each other. Like it just seems like this a really strong emotional connection, and that was just a bond because Luther would re- release album after album, right? So like they were always working together, and he always she was always on the record. So just this long sustained relationship um i just think that's that's just really powerful to me was that a good answer that answer your question yeah, that was did you want me to say about, like patty yeah. labelle or yeah, something that was great and I, yeah, i'm just I thinking think, about yeah patty labelle is another person because of course he was he was obsessed with patty labelle and the bluebells and he was their first fan club president and patty will say miss labelle would say like she, he was harassing them after the show always running after them and everything like that and then of course they later became kind of peers and friends as peers. And then they would have a kind of, you know, competitive relationship trying to outspend each other at these you know, LA stores and everything like that. So I think that's another relationship that was just very important and consistent throughout his life. Um, but I just think that that was more kind of high profile and then the public where the relationship with Ms. Um, Houston is kind of more, in the background. And then of course we also know that the person he was most obsessed with as a as a sort of boy and then into this teen and 20 years was um Aretha Franklin. And then of course they ended up having a very both supportive slash rocky <laughs> relationship throughout their career. So it, it's just throughout their lives. So it's it's really interesting just the fact that he ended up working with all of his childhood idols. And that's part of what I mean when I just say the life, his life was just amazing. His life was more than most of us will ever, you know, hope or in that sort of cycle about all how all he ended up being able to help and the people that he grew up loving and they ended up help being able to help him and all of that kind of stuff. But he was just obsessed with having that number one pop hit and he was just obsessed with having that a certain type of love and you know I just often try, try to think like I think is that 
an exam, and I do think that he was completely appreciative and understanding of what he accomplished and everything like that. But she, you know, like I don't know, like we all when I think about that when I hear Serena Williams talk about her winning, uh, you know, she always wants to win that next Grand Slam and stuff like that, and. So I don't know. Is that something that motivates people or is that something that is like a hindrance? I really can't come to a conclusion about that other than I guess people that are in their field just want to be excellent in their field. And maybe that's just all it was. And maybe for ambitious people, that's just always going to be there there's always going to be that desire to climb a higher mountain and to reach that peak so i think there are a lot of like life lessons in the book and or if not lessons but there's just a lot of ways to reflect on your own life based upon what he went through totally yeah that happened with me even in just writing the book it just made me and it's something i come back to a lot just thinking about those types of things in his life to just trying to like contextualize or make peace with the things that I want in my career and the things that I want in my life and just how I'm even viewing my life. Am I looking at the things that I don't have or am I looking at the things that I do have and have accomplished? Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and he was so specific about the, um, yeah, about that desire. I mean, this idea that he, you know, it wasn't enough that he had reached number one on the R&B charts. Like he wanted to be number one on the pop charts. Like he wanted to be that crossover artist, you know? And, and so it's, it was, you know, you're so right that he was so specific about the things that he desired and the things that he felt like he never really achieved. And, you know, and the same, you know, goes to, you know, same goes for, you know, his, um, you know, his interest in love and romance that was like so specific and yet, you know, seems so unattainable. Um, and then what about, so, you know, and I'm curious about, yeah, like contemporary artists or more recent artists that you feel like he influenced as well. I know at the kind of toward the end of the book, you talk about how he had, um, on one of his last albums, he collaborated with Beyonce, who at the time was still, you know, the front woman of Destiny's Child, and he just loved her. And so, you know, and the fact that she's, you know, still making, I mean, obviously, like, kind of the peak of her career, arguably. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, to what extent do you feel like she's been influenced by Luther or other people who are making music today um, were influenced by him? That is a really... Um... Excellent question. One thing I will say, just because I don't know if it's just speaking for the spirit of Luther, okay. but he would always, because I said something similar, and he would clap back and say that he always loved going number one R&B, and he always was fully embracing that the fact that he had such a um, unwaveringly supportive Black audience. But what he would say is that he feels like he should also be able to get a number one in addition to that. Like he never wanted to sacrifice his black audience to get that. He just wanted that. I always countered him, which he didn't like um, with the examples of the people that he would say that had that crossover success did not have the longevity, the contemporary relevance to R and B that he still had. Cause he would throw out like a person like Bobby McFerrin or, um, Billy Ocean or Lionel Richie and all of those people are wonderful. And, you know, of course, black folks love Lionel Richie from the Commodores to the whatever, but in terms of like who's showing up to the shows and everything like that, Luther had a huge black audience in a way that they did not have at that particular moment. So I saw it as kind of, I, I was a little, so I tried to contextualize that, but he didn't like that at all. So that's, is what it is. I was really struggling when you initially said like the artists that are influenced by him, because I think vocally he is just very, very singular in a way that is just hard, difficult to um, emulate. P partly because I think masculinity is still sort of constructed by these this kind of image and the being the seductive person and being the love man and being the sex man and luther was never about any of that so i don't really know of like a big artist right now that i know a lot of artists are trying to redefine that now but somebody that's kind of redefined that and is able to have like huge commercial success and get a lot of people involved. I don't know that that there's necessarily a figure that's involved in that, but I hadn't really thought about it with Beyonce in terms of Luther because she's such a different artist. But I just think, that, you know, the pursuit 
of excellence and just the um, sort of like commitment to the live show just being just something that like if people if their mouth aren't on the floor by the time they you they leave the venue then you have not done your job like just to and to create an entire sort of like musical and visual experience I think that's very much um I can definitely see a continuum there because Luther definitely elevated the R&B show you know with the Versace gowns and the this and his background singers and that stuff was always as important to him as the music and I think if somebody like Beyonce were like yes the visual presentation of the music is as important as the music itself so I think that was I think that's a great um a great comparison so thank you for that yeah yeah it was it's um I mean, that was mind blowing to read those parts of the book where you're just kind of outlining the budget that he had, you know, kind of spent on. You know, one of the shows was, you know, a million dollars just to produce. And, you know, he had these like, yeah, specially made gowns and yeah, and the and his suits and, you know, even for his backup singers. Like it just is amazing, uh, the amount of of effort and money and just, you know, kind of energy that he put into these productions. And I'm, you know, I'm sad that I never I never saw them. So you, I know that you'd seen his, so you went to Jamaica, you saw him perform there. Did you, were you able to see his other productions or to see him? Oh live yeah, I, I, um, I went to see a show, I think it was like in 82 or 83. Um, and I'm a DC baby. Like, so I was going to shows when I was, I'm, there are shows that I don't remember. Like I was told that the first concert I ever went to was the Jackson five. I don't remember that, but I do remember seeing, um, being at the Parliament Funkadelic show and actually the Mothership Connection tour and seeing the Mothership Land, so I had like inc- I had these amazing experiences just as a very little boy, like elementary school and stuff like that. But when I saw Luther, I'm pretty sure it was the Busybody tour and just the presentation of that because I also um, was privileged enough to be able to see like some of the great Black Broadway shows at the time, like seeing. The Wiz, the original Wiz with Stephanie Mills and Dreamgirls and all of that kind of stuff. So I was kind of aware of the concert aesthetic and I was kind of aware of the Broadway aesthetic. And so seeing Luther for the first time and he kind of merged the two. So you were getting the live concert experience. But like I said, there was like an Alvin Ailey-ish dancer, you know, with the rap dress and the dancing on top of things and a beautiful piano and staircases and set pieces like even having seen the mothership landed like i had never seen something (laughs) so theatrical and so purposeful and such a like um you know the kind of things that would madonna would go on to do and janet jackson would go on to do and just now we kind of expect that when we show up to shows but back then you know a show that you would see in a big live in a big concert hall wasn't really different than the show you would see in a small club it was just they were standing on a different stage but Luther was part of a generation that started rethinking the concert show for the larger spaces. And just to be able to witness that at really an early point was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I'm sorry. I've seen that. And then I I even saw his very, very last tour after the Jamaica tour. I saw him, he came to Buffalo And this must have been less than a year before he had the stroke. And it was, again, just such such the level of excellence because the people that he worked with were just so excellent. And so, you know, you talk about Black excellence, like it really was Black excellence because everybody was so exacting about what they were doing. And he even explained to me, he even said that he gives a lot of criticism to his background. So not criticism, but a lot of feedback because these people want to be excellent. These aren't people that want to be coddled. These are people that want to be excellent. Because I remember when he was, um, when in the Jamaica tour, his song, Take Me Out, um, Take You Out was a brand new song. So the background singers didn't know it. And they were doing the backgrounds and everything like that. And at one point in the song, it's, I'll take you to a movie, to the park. Well, you know, people say, oh, let's go to the movies. You know, like it's just got a colloquial that a lot of people just add a plural onto movies. 
So one of the background singers did that, and he stopped the entire thing. And he said, oh, uh, 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 uh. somebody said movies. We are going to a movie. We are not going to movies. And I was <laughs> like, oh, God. You know, like some people are just like, that slide. But right. he didn't. And he was explaining. And, and he, it does make sense. The people that he was paying top dollar to to be great, that they wanted to be corrected on that. They don't want to be to be saying the, the wrong lyrics. So it's so it's just a really example of black excellence as not just something to kind of look back and appreciate, but to see the kind of work and precision and the having to be open to criticism that black excellence entails and what it has to be done in order to achieve black, black excellence. I guess that's my point. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, this is probably a, a, an unfair question, but I'm sure you get it a lot. Uh, do you have a favorite Luther song? You've dropped a couple of titles, um, but I'm curious if um, I'm curious if you have, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious if you, um, yeah, have a favorite, have a favorite Luther song. I know this is probably a very difficult question to answer, but yeah. Or a favorite album even. Well, now I feel bad because my answer was, I had an answer, but now I feel like maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> but yeah, my favorite, my favorite Luther song is Wait for Love, the ballad Wait okay. for Love. Cause I just think that basically says everything you ever need to know about him as an artist and him as a person, you know, um, that's what he spent his life doing, Mm -hmm. you know, waiting for love as a lot of people do. A lot of us do. And I I just, and it's also just so like, he was really waiting for love in terms of the appreciation from the industry. He was waiting for love. I mean, it's, it's just, it can be so, um, applicable to so many situations. Um, but yeah, I just I just love that that song. Just um, always just takes me right to sort of the heart of his artistry. So if yeah. I have to be in that like that's an easy connection. Um, even when other people are doing it, like um, I once saw Faith Evans do it at the Essence Festival, and it connected me to Luther as much, if not more, because what it was like is you know it's sort of like when you're having a conversation with somebody about how much they love something and like their appreciation can make you love it even more. It's like, even when people cover the song, it's kind of like having a conversation and maybe they stress certain lyrics that you didn't necessarily see before. And I just think that song just always keeps revealing its depths to me and um, everything. I would say the favorite album would just to, just to go back with, the, the childhood that not really childhood but i think i was like a preteen or like a teenager but busybody for me because i connected it to, to it so much before i had any idea really like about the complexities of relationships or anything like that and like it has remained relevant the song what he talks about in relationships it has remained relevant throughout the years the, like i'll let you slide where he a person cheated on him, but he still, he lets them slide because of whatever reasons, you know, as I've matured in life and just seen the compromises that you have to sometimes make to be in a relationship, you know, that's, it also has busybody on it. You know, a lot of us experience it, being in a relationship with somebody who was a busybody with other things. And, you know, that also has, superstar on it and that was such an epic to hear somebody merge superstar and until you come back to me and like have such an epic epic reading of that song oh and the other thing about it too is this is an interesting kind of segue and why it was spoke to me so much in my teens is because i was kind of like a really new wave teen like i really love like all the new even though i you know all my background is just you know Black music, black radio. Like I just, I think I went on a trip to. I went on like a um, some sort of like school trip, or like send black children to Europe or something like that or whatever. It was like my teen years. But anyway, so when I was there, I fell in love with like the Human League and all these um acts that used all these synthesizers. And on Busybody, he incorporates all of these kind of synthesized sounds into that. So it was really much. It was almost like. A, a musical representation of how I was 
my musical identity was developing because I was getting all these influences of like the British new wave synth pop bands, but also my heart was always in traditional R and B. And here you have this album that's bringing it all together. So yeah, that's a lot to say about it, but that's probably why that's still my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I've actually, I've, I've not listened to it, so I'm going to, I'm going to do that this weekend. So thank you for that recommendation. Um, and yeah, and, and, you know, wait for love. It's, it, it captures the longing that you really do pursue in the book. So I can, you know, that's, I, that is, it is a powerful song and I can fully understand given, you know, the process of you writing this book, why that would be a favorite. Um, so one final question for you, um, before I let you go is, um, are you working on anything now that you're particularly excited about or any projects in the future that, um, you're looking forward to any other biographies or any, you know, kind of interviews or profiles that you're, um, that you're writing about or working on that you want to share? Uh, sure. Um, I'm actually in the final process, um, like literally like wrapping it up of a Janet Jackson biography, which I plan to release next year. So um, that even though I swore I would never write another biography after Luther, and I'm going to swear again that I will never write another biography after this Janet biography. But um, yeah, so um and again, it's sort of from the same impulse. It's just like, she's just this huge figure in the culture. But yet, if you wanted to find one source on her, where are you going to go? There, There's no book on her, um, sort of a comprehensive book on her life. There's no, the the sort of things about her life and what makes her significant is so sort of dispersed all over everything place so i wanted just you know if i'm going to leave a legacy if i'm going to want my kind of time on earth and time in this writing career to mean something hey i would like to be able to know that somebody after me is going to be able to have one place to go to to find out the story of janet jackson just like i'm glad that somebody has one place to go to to find out the story of luther vandross so that is yeah what i'm working on that is so exciting. Well, good luck with that project. I'm excited to, you know, comes out next year. I'll be excited to read it and hopefully I'll be able to interview you again about it. Oh, of course. Anytime. <laughs> this has been so great. It's been such a, um, it's been so emotional, but it's been, but it's been um, really wonderful. I really thank you for the opportunity. Of course. Yeah. And for me too, it's been like, yeah, like more, I mean, it was the, reading the book was emotional, but this is, you know, just another layer of that emotionality. So um, yeah, just thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, Craig, and really looking forward to reading more of your work in the future. Thank you so much. Yeah. So this has been an interview with Dr. Craig Seymour about his book, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. I'm Krisa Pugh, and this has been an episode of New Books and Biography, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>